Chapter Eight of *The Curious Quest* by E. Phillips Oppenheim. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Adrian Pretzelis. Chapter Eight. That night something happened to Bliss which he had anticipated many times in his dreams since the day when he had marched out of the shop in Regent Street with his working clothes in a parcel under his arm and a queer almost unaccountable lump in his throat. He had taken his usual respectful adieu of his employer, and was walking rather aimlessly down King Street, when he came face to face with two girls. The one nearest to him was the young lady who had visited Mr. Cockrell in the first afternoon of his engagement. The other he recognized, with a thrill of pleasure, a pleasure that came to him almost as a shock, it was Frances Clayton. "'Mr. Bliss!' she exclaimed, stopping abruptly on the pavement before him. "'Why, whatever—how delightful to see you again!' she broke off with quick tact. He shook hands silently, with an amazing sense of content. She was very well dressed, and an entirely different person from the rather sad-eyed young woman who had resented his appointment as a traveller to the firm of Masters and Company. He was ridiculously glad to see her. "'Why did you behave so unkindly?' she went on reproachfully. "'Couldn't be helped,' he assured her. "'Tell me about the cooking-stoves. How are they going?' "'Going?' she repeated beamingly. "'I wouldn't dare to tell you how many thousands we have sold.' Mr. Masters is down in the country now, negotiating for a new factory. And you, you ought to be there with him." Bliss sighed. "'It was great sport selling those stoves,' he remarked evasively. She kept her hands in her muff, but she leaned a little towards him. Her eyes challenged his. "'Before you move,' she insisted, You've got to tell me absolutely why you behaved in such an extraordinary manner." "'Extraordinary manner?' he echoed feebly. "'You know quite well what I mean,' she continued. "'You saved Mr. Masters from ruin. He has started upon a new lease of life. You laid the foundations of his fortune, then, instead of taking a thing for yourself, you disappeared.' "'I couldn't help it,' he protested. His answer was baffling in its very simplicity. She looked him over. His clothes were just respectable, but no more. "'What are you doing now?' she demanded. "'I have a situation in this street,' he answered. The other girl, who had been standing a little way off, suddenly gave a cry. He knew then that he was recognized. "'Why?' "'You are the young man who let me into Mr. Cockerell's room the other day,' she exclaimed. "'Francis, come here a moment.' The two girls talked earnestly. Presently they returned. "'Mr. Bliss,' Francis said, "'this is Miss Morrison, a friend of mine. She has been telling me some rather extraordinary things about your employer, Mr. Cockerell. How long have you been with him?' "'Just over three weeks.' Miss Morrison leaned a little forward and intervened. She lowered her voice. "'Did you know anything about him before you went there?' she asked. 
"'Not a thing,' he answered. "'I just heard of the job through a registry office. One does not require a reference from an employer when one wants work.' "'Where are you going now?' Francis broke in, a little abruptly. "'Nowhere in particular,' Bliss replied. "'I've just left work.' "'Will you come and have some tea with us?' Miss Morrison begged. "'I want to talk to you for a few minutes, and I'm quite sure Frances does too. She told me all about you long ago.' "'With pleasure,' Bliss agreed promptly. "'Where shall we go? Rumpelmeyer's?' They stared at him for a moment, and then Frances laughed. "'Absurd! We'll go to a little place I know. It isn't far, and we can talk in peace. This way.' They found a little tea-shop not far from Piccadilly Circus. There were very few people in the place, and no one within half a dozen yards of their corner table. Yet Mrs. Morrison lowered her voice when she spoke. She leaned forward across the table, with her head supported upon her hands. "'Do you mean to tell me, Mr. Bliss, that you have been with Mr. Cockrell for nearly a month, and you haven't seen through that bird business yet?' "'Seen through it?' Bliss repeated. "'He's a fraud! That's what the man is,' she declared tremulously. "'He cares no more for birds than you or I. It's all a blind!' The girl pushed back her veil, and in the light of the incandescent gas her face was almost ghastly in its earnestness. "'Francis swears that you are to be trusted,' "'So I want you to listen, and I will tell you all I know of him,' she continued. "'A month ago I received a letter from him asking me to call at his office in King Street. "'The letter hinted quite vaguely at a certain episode in my life "'which I had not imagined that anyone save my lawyer and myself "'and one other person who is dead knew anything of. "'I hesitated for some time. Then I went. I had no idea why.' I just wanted to ask for an explanation of his letter. I can remember those awful minutes even now. The birds were singing, that wretched parrot was sitting on his shoulder. He leaned back in his chair, and he calmly reproduced the whole story before me, detail by detail. He sat there with that good-natured smile upon his lips, and he just watched. When he had finished he asked me questions, and all the time I struggled to answer them, he still watched. Then he told me, word for word, the contents of a letter I had once written, a letter I would have given my life to have recalled. Do you know that after I left his office I did not sleep for three nights? Do you mean to suggest that he is a blackmailer? Bliss asked bluntly. "'Of course he is,' the girl replied chokingly. "'As yet he hasn't given himself away, "'simply because he wants to find out how much money I can raise. "'He has made me go there three times on some pretext or other, "'and each time he just talks that hideous affair over and watches me. "'He has just written to Miss Morrison, "'asking her to go and see him again next Monday,' Francis intervened. "'And when I go—' the girl faltered. I know precisely what will happen. He will make me tell my story all over again. And in the end he will want money, Francis broke in. Anyone can see that. 
and I haven't got a penny!' Miss Morrison exclaimed hopelessly. "'I haven't a penny!' Bliss sat back a little grimly in his chair. In a way the girl's story had been a shock to him. "'Tell me exactly what I can do in the matter,' he asked. "'Search his rooms,' Francis answered promptly. "'Spy on him. Get some evidence to prove that he really is a blackmailer.' Bliss sighed. Both the girls were almost hanging over him in their excitement. "'Well, we'll see.' he promised. I will do what I can. He paid for the tea bravely. No one would have guessed from his manner that it was his last half-sovereign which he handed over the counter for change. Francis scribbled upon a piece of paper and gave it to him. "'There's my address,' she said. "'When will you come and see me?' He hesitated. "'I will answer my own question,' she continued firmly. "'You will come on Sunday afternoon to tea.' He accepted cheerfully. Sunday had been perhaps the most miserable of all those purgatorial days. About four o'clock I will be there, he promised. End of chapter eight. Chapter nine. Mr. Cockerell, when he arrived at his office next morning, appeared to be in an unusually good humour. He wore a bunch of violets in his buttonhole, and his air of medieval distinction had never been more noticeable. He nodded kindly to Bliss. "'I am a few minutes before my time,' he remarked. "'To tell you the truth, I was a little anxious about Tommy last night. He refused his seed.' Mr. Cockerell produced his key, and they entered the little room together. There was the usual outburst of welcome from the birds. Tommy the bullfinch alone was silent, and Tommy was obviously not well. Mr. Cockerell hung up his hat hastily. His fingers trembled as he withdrew his kid gloves. "'I shall want a, a little warm water and some warm milk, Bliss,' he announced. "'You had better light the fire at once before you clean out and feed the other birds.' "'What a beastly shame!' the parrot screamed, ruffling its feathers. Mr. Cockerell took no notice. He was busy arranging a little flannel-lined basket for the bullfinch. For the rest of the day he sat with the bird by his side, continually pausing in his work to whistle and talk to it. At five o'clock he reluctantly prepared to depart. He called Bliss in. "'I'm afraid,' he said, "'that Tommy is no better. His condition, in short, makes me very anxious.' Bliss looked at his employer curiously. There was not the slightest doubt that he was telling the truth. "'I dare not take him away with me,' the latter continued. "'I am afraid of the cold air. Uh, tomorrow, as you know, is Sunday. Uh, can I trouble you, Bliss, to attend here in the morning? See how he is, and come and let me know. I will hand you the key of my room on my departure.' "'I will come with pleasure,' Bliss replied. "'Where shall I find you, sir?' "'I live at the Acropolis Club, Pall Mall,' Mr. Cockerell told him, drawing a card from his pocket and scribbling a line on the back of it. "'If you present that, you will be allowed to come up to my room. Kindly arrange to be there about ten o'clock in the morning.' Bliss spent that night with the key of the office under his pillow. 
Long before eight o'clock the next morning, he climbed the stairs of the building in King Street, and let himself into Mr. Cockerell's little apartment. There was the usual shriek from the parrot, and twitter from the birds. He pulled up the blind. Tommy had left his basket and was hopping about the mantelpiece. Bliss closed the door. He was now face to face with a problem which had been before him all the night, a problem which was rendered more acute by the fact that the Derby desk at which Mr. Cockerell spent his days stood open. He considered the character and the number of the callers. He recalled the agitation of Miss Morrison and one or two others. In the end, he set his teeth. He was justified. He started with the desk, and turned over a great pile of manuscript which lay there. From beginning to end it was exactly what it purported to be. He opened each drawer and examined its contents. Every memorandum he found referred to birds. Every scrap of paper he touched referred to birds. He found photographs of birds, letters from learned men about birds in many languages. In the whole of the desk he did not find a single line of writing which did not refer directly or indirectly to birds. He left the desk exactly as it was, and he examined every inch of the room. There was not a box nor a drawer or any possible receptacle there which he did not search. When he had finished his cheeks were scarlet. He almost kicked himself as he went out. Nevertheless he carried through his whole intention. He cut a small knot-hole in the wall which would allow him from the outside to see into the room. At ten o'clock precisely he presented himself at the portals of the great club in Pall Mall and encountered Mr. Cockerell in the hall. He made his report, which his employer received with a sigh of deep relief. Then he turned to go. "'You don't seem very well yourself this morning, Bliss,' Mr. Cockerell remarked kindly. "'You must allow me, if you please, to offer you a little trifle for this incursion into your day of rest. We will look upon it as a thank-you offering for Tommy's recovery.' Bliss waved the half-sovereign away, a little incoherently. "'You'll forgive me, sir,' he begged. I couldn't possibly take it. Couldn't possibly. I'll be there in good time in the morning." He hurried off and passed outside the club with an air of relief. He wandered about the park for a while, uh, ate a very modest dinner at his lodgings, and at four o'clock he travelled out to Hampstead and rang the bell of a pleasant-looking little house in a neighbourhood which was quite strange to him. Frances herself opened the door. "'Well?' she asked eagerly as she showed him into a little sitting-room. Bliss put down his hat. "'Look here,' he began. "'Don't think me unreasonable, but I feel inclined to say, confound your Miss Morrison. I've made a beast of myself, Miss Clayton. I've been through the whole of Mr. Cockrell's papers. My fingers itch with it. I've been kicking myself ever since.' "'Well?' she repeated. "'There wasn't a scrap of writing anywhere.' he declared, which hadn't to do with birds. 
I went through the manuscript of his book, even. Uh, there was enough work there, recent work, too, to have kept him busy every moment of his time. There wasn't the slightest sign of any other occupation or interest in life. Frances had tact, and she contented herself with a little grimace. "'Never mind,' she said. "'You did what you thought was right, and motive is everything. Now let us have some tea and talk.' Bliss spent an exceedingly pleasant, though very unusual, two hours. Francis had improved with prosperity. In the daintily furnished little room, and at tea while she ministered to his wants, she seemed very graceful and very attractive to him. Her voice was low, her sense of humour abundant. They laughed together many times at the memory of those anxious weeks when Bliss was trying to sell stoves. Only once he made a remark which seemed to cause her some embarrassment. "'Your room is almost like a conservatory,' he declared, glancing at the great bowl of violets in the middle of the table. She changed colour a little. "'Mr. Masters sends me all these flowers,' she explained. "'Sometimes I really wish he wouldn't.' "'Is Mr. Masters married?' Bliss asked quickly. "'He is a widower,' she replied. "'He has been a widower for ten years.' "'How old is he?' Fifty next birthday. Sometimes I think he looks older than that, and sometimes younger. He has such wonderful spirits, such boundless optimism. He's opening up agencies now for the Alpha Stove all over the world.' Bliss was silent for a little time. Somehow or other his keen sense of enjoyment seemed to have gone. He kept on reminding himself that he was a light porter earning thirty shillings a week. Nevertheless the question pumped itself out. "'Does Mr. Masters want you to marry him?' She looked at him gravely. They were both standing now, for he had been on the point of saying good-bye. "'I think he does.' she admitted. Why do you ask? Are you going to say yes? I do not know. Tell me, what will you advise me to do? My advice, he declared a little hoarsely, might not be quite disinterested. Still, won't you give it? He set his teeth firmly together. I, I can't, he said. Uh, you must decide for yourself." She followed him out to the door. No other word passed between them till their hands met. Yet, somehow or other, he fancied that she had understood. "'Will you come and see me next Sunday?' she asked. "'Thank you,' he answered. "'Of course I will.' He walked down the hill towards where the myriad lights of London flamed up to the sky. A crowd of curious thoughts seemed to have taken possession of him. He was conscious of a new, incomprehensible exhilaration. How was it that in the old life there had never been time to think, that the stars and the lights and the wind had meant so little, that the world had seemed so humdrum a place? He laughed at himself as he felt in his pockets to see whether he could afford a bus, and thought of the bread and cheese which would be spread out on the table before him when he returned to his lodgings. They would be dining at the Savoy and the Carlton in an hour or so, 
crowds of his late friends, little ladies of musical comedy so charmed to have him sit by their side and whisper in their ear, so delighted to make up a party afterwards at one of their flats, and sing or dance or flirt. There was his French chef, idle, his bathroom and wardrobe untouched, his motor-cars, a hundred expedients of wealth, waiting for a word from him. Already he was beginning to find it hard to realize that other life. And friends of whom he thought, who would welcome him back to-night, seemed to belong to such a banal, such an artificial side of existence, something built up with false lines and painted with crude colours. He discovered an extra penny in his trousers' pocket, and whistled with joy as he clambered up to his seat on the top of an omnibus. On the next morning things happened. A caller presented himself at the little office in King Street at about eleven o'clock, whom Bliss recognised with a little start of surprise as a very distinguished solicitor, and whom he had met more than once in the old days. He too had the same strained look upon his face as he presented his card and asked to see Mr. Cockerell. "'Mr. Cockerell is in, sir,' Bliss admitted. "'I will let him know that you are here.' Bliss took in the card, which Mr. Cockerell glanced at, and sighed. It was obvious that he did not contemplate any pleasure from the forthcoming interview. "'You can show the gentleman in, Bliss,' he said resignedly. "'I'm very busy this morning, though, and I can only give him a few minutes.' The newcomer was already in the room, and Bliss had time before he departed to notice that the greeting between the two men was strained. Bliss closed the door and stood for a moment, hesitating. He clenched his fists and applied his ear to the knot-hole. "'Pleased, though I am at any time to see you, my dear Fenwick,' Mr. Cockerell was saying, "'I look upon your present visit as indiscreet. I receive here only my bird friends and two or three people who, thanks to you, my dear fellow, uh, help to make my life interesting.' There was a moment's pause. Then the visitor spoke. His voice was shaking with passion. "'Cockerell,' he said, "'it's about those people I have come. I have got to give it up. Indeed, believe me, it can't go on. Miss Morrison, Harry Verner, Lady Martinghole, uh, have all been to me. Uh, they swear that I have been their only confidant. You don't seem to understand the risk.' There are rumours flying about already of some great blackmailing scheme which is kept on its legs by leakages from the office of a famous firm of solicitors. We have not had a new client for the last three weeks. Mr. Cockerell tapped with his pencil upon the desk. Gently, gently, my friend, he exclaimed irritably. That is a hateful word to which I must object. There is no blackmailing in it. There is, was the angry retort. It may not be money you exact, but it's money's kind. It is torture, sheer and purposeless brutality. 
Mr. Cockerell sighed. "'How unreasonable you are this morning, my dear Fenwick! It really is very unkind of you to come here in this frame of mind. You know very well that I have only two interests in life, uh, my birds and the strange, indescribable but extraordinarily supple pleasure I feel,' Mr. Cockerell went on, his voice growing more earnest, his eyes shining, in having people sit in that chair— just where you are sitting now, my dear Fenwick, and watching their terror when they realise that a light is streaming in upon some dark secret chamber of their lives, that they are face to face with one who has a power over them, which is as the power of life and death. Something was flashing out of Mr. Cockerell's eyes which Bliss had never seen there before. His tone, too, quivered, as though with ecstasy. "'Pleasure or no pleasure,' the other declared firmly, oh, "'I've come to tell you. It's finished. You can go to my partners tomorrow and tell them the truth. Out with it, whenever you like, from the housetops or in my clerk's office. Tell them that I robbed the firm of a few hundred pounds in the days when I was an articled clerk.' You found it out, and you've held it over me all those years. I'm finished now. Not another word do you get out of me. And as for those unfortunate clients whom you keep on tenterhooks, I'm going to tell them the truth, and they will understand how little they have to fear. Thoroughly unreasonable this morning, I see, my friend, Mr. Cockerell sighed. What with dear Tommy's indisposition and your unreasonableness, I perceive I shall end the day with a bad headache. I don't care if you end it in hell, Mr. Fenwick declared fiercely. I'm here for one purpose, and for one purpose only. I'm going to have those documents you robbed me of, and return them to my clients, or wring your neck. Mr. Cockerell sat back in his chair. "'No violence, if you please,' he begged. "'Help yourself, my dear friend. "'The office and all it contains is at your disposal.' Fenwick commenced at once to search the place, opening drawers, throwing around him the typewritten sheets of that wonderful treatise on birds, glancing closely at every scrap of paper. Mr. Cockerell sighed more than once. "'Thoroughly unreasonable, I regret to see.' he repeated. You're making a shocking mess. Mr. Fenwick resumed his seat. Until you hand over those documents, he said, I shall stop here. In which case, Mr. Cockerell replied, drawing his typewriter towards him, I shall go on with my work. Bliss stole down the stairs, called a taxi, and drove to the Acropolis Club. He presented Mr. Cockerell's card, of which he had retained possession, and was at once allowed access to his room. He was back again in his place at the knot-hole within a quarter of an hour. He peered into the room. Mr. Cockerell was banging away at his machine. Mr. Fenwick was sitting a few yards off with folded arms. Then he slipped from his place, knocked at the door, and entered the room with a dispatch-box under his hand. 
"'You were inquiring about some documents?' he said to Mr. Fenwick. "'I think you will find them in here.' Mr. Cockerell, for once, was discomposed. He stared blankly at Bliss. Mr. Fenwick was speechless. "'You are a thief!' Mr. Cockerell gasped at last. "'You have been to my rooms! You have robbed me!' Bliss set down the box by Mr. Fenwick's side. "'A thief, perhaps,' he assented, turning to his employer. "'And you are a blackmailer.' There was a moment's breathless silence. Mr. Cockerell was very white. "'If you want to give me in charge,' Bliss went on slowly, "'you can.' I told the hall-porter as I came up here there might be a little trouble, and that if I rang the lift-bell it would be for a policeman. "'I'll give the pair of you in charge,' Mr. Cockerell blustered, rising to his feet. "'That box contains my personal securities.' "'I don't like to have to speak so plainly,' Bliss replied. "'But I believe you're a liar. Anyway, you will have to trust Mr. Fenwick to return them to you.' There was just one more little matter. He held out his hand and pointed to the empty space in the window, and the empty space over the mantelpiece. Mr. Cockerell seemed, if possible, more agitated than ever. "'What have you done with the birds?' he cried quickly. "'They are out on the leads, enjoying the sunshine,' Bliss replied. "'If you're going to take this matter reasonably, they will be back again in a few minutes. If you don't, I will wring their necks one by one and throw them out into the street. Mr. Cockerell rose to his feet, reached to his silk hat, set it firmly upon his head, and took his gloves and umbrella from the corner. "'I will accompany you to the office, Fenwick,' he said meekly. "'You can go through the box and destroy anything you think fit.' What I have there that is personal property, you can restore it to me. "'Is that satisfactory to you, sir?' Bliss asked of Mr. Fenwick. "'My God, yes!' the latter replied. Bliss handed him the dispatch-box, and ushered the two men out of the room. "'You will look after the birds before you go,' Mr. Cockerell begged humbly. "'I will bring them in at once, sir,' Bliss promised. "'And afterwards you will come and see me,' Mr. Fenwick invited, holding out a card. "'Here is my address.' "'Thank you, sir,' Bliss answered. The two men left the place. Bliss brought in the birds, swept out the offices, locked them up behind him, and took the key round to the Acropolis Club. Then he strolled into the park, and seated himself upon one of the benches. He took out a calendar from his pocket, and made a little calculation. He was once more out of a job, and there remained nine months, two weeks, and a day to his great adventure. End of chapter 9